This is the Liberty and Law Podcast, where practicing lawyer and legal scholar Jeff Teichert offers unique insight into the relationship between law and liberty in history, politics, and American life. If you have a passion for liberty, you are in the right place. Hello, Liberty lovers, and welcome to another edition of the Liberty and Law Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss antitrust law. And We're going to do it kind of to some degree in the context of the recent interesting lawsuit involving uh, the NCAA and college sports. And I'm using that, frankly, just as a template to give you sort of a little overall and necessarily incomplete education about antitrust law, its role in American business, and the implications that it has for uh, liberty, particularly economic liberty in this country. Congress passed the first antitrust law, uh, which was called the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890. And it was viewed as a comprehensive charter of economic liberty aimed at preserving free and unfettered competition as a rule of trade. All right, now that's a pretty broad overarching statement, and the law itself is also. Uh, In 1914, by the way, Congress passed two additional antitrust laws. Uh, One is the Federal Trade Commission Act, and the other is the Clayton Act. And uh, with some revisions, these three are the core of federal antitrust laws today. Antitrust laws are designed to prevent unlawful mergers and business practices Uh, kind of in general terms, and they leave a lot of the uh, development of the specific legal principles along with the uh, decisions in the cases up to the courts. The laws uh, are extremely vague uh, in, in the actual statutes that are passed, and so the courts really have to Uh, be creative in the way that they've enforced these. And that isn't because they want to be judicial activists. It is simply because the statutes are framed in such general terms that a lot depends on interpretation. Uh, For a hundred years, though, the antitrust laws have had the same basic objectives to protect the process of competition for the benefit of consumers Uh, to make sure that there are strong incentives for businesses to operate efficiently, keep prices relatively lower, and keep the quality relatively higher. Now, the Sherman Act, which we'll primarily focus on today, outlaws, and this is a quote, every contract, combination, or conspiracy in restraint of trade and any monopolization, attempted monopolization, or conspiracy or combination to monopolize. So the Supreme Court, I mean, you can see that that's extremely vague language. Uh, There aren't a lot of specific provisions about what can and can't be done or how you have to define markets or whatever. It's just saying 
If you make a contract combination or conspiracy in restraint of trade or attempt monopolization or conspiracy uh, or create a combination to monopolize, uh, you're going to be in violation of this act. Well, what does that all mean? Uh, long ago, the Supreme Court uh, decided that the Sherman Act doesn't prohibit every restraint of trade, only those that are unreasonable. And why would that be? Well, literally, every contract you make with another company, whether it's a non-disclosure agreement, uh, if you make an employee sign a covenant not to compete in their employment agreement, you know, anything like that could be considered in restraint of trade in the future. Uh, an agreement between two companies, an exclusive supply agreement, for example, could be in restraint of trade because it prevents somebody from going out and buying from a different supplier. And the freedom of contract is also an important pillar of our system of economic freedom in the United States. And so the Supreme Court has said that that it only pre uh, prevents restraints of trade that are considered unreasonable. In some sense, an agreement between two individuals to form a partnership might restrain trade uh, if you just accepted a literal reading of this. I mean, almost any contract related to business would be a restraint of trade. And so interpreting the Sherman Act literally would shut down commerce in the United States. And, and that was not the intent of Congress. On the other hand, certain acts are considered so harmful uh, to competition that they're almost always considered illegal. Uh, those acts are considered per se violations of the Sherman Act. And those would include things like price fixing, uh, dividing markets, rigging bids, that kind of thing. Uh, typically for a Sherman Act uh, violation to attach, you have to have two components. You have to have market power and anti-competitive conduct. And an example of anti-competitive conduct might be predatory pricing. You're the biggest dog in the market and you decide that you're going to price your less economically viable uh, competitors out of business. So you actually go out there and lose money on a particular uh, item that the competitor relies on uh, selling. And you, you decide you can take those losses for a while in order to eliminate your competitor. And so you go out, you price your competitor out of the market, and then you jack prices up sky high because you now have a monopoly. I mean, I've oversimplified, but that's, that's a good example of something considered anti-competitive. Uh, as I said, this comes out of um, um, 
the Gilded Age. You know, it was in 1890, and it comes out of that era where obviously railroads had uh, certain monopoly power and and other uh, business trusts were were operating to combine uh, their forces and set prices and do all kinds of things that might have been really efficient for the the trusts involved, but very uh, economically oppressive to the consumer, to workers, and to others. And so uh, the, the antitrust laws are designed to deal with that kind of thing. The, the tricky part of this is you're talking about, when you're talking about, does someone have market power? Well, that might depend on how you define the market. Is the market for lollipops, for example, is it distinct? Uh, do we consider sales of lollipops only when we consider the market, or do we consider the market all candy or all dessert items? And whether someone has market power depends a great deal on how you define the market. All right. And in the NCAA case that we're talking about, uh, that was just argued in the United States Supreme Court, uh, we're looking at, uh, at a question of whether athletes can receive unlimited education-related help uh, from the schools that they compete for uh, or whether that ha can, the NCAA can limit that in some way. And of course, it, it implicates the questions of can you require these athletes to compete as amateurs um, or is there a, a larger objective? And it's interesting, the alliances on the court on this and how, how it appears to be separating out. Uh, the attorney for the NCAA was Seth Waxman, very distinguished lawyer. He was the Solicitor General of the United States, which is the leading Supreme Court advocate for the federal government uh, during the Obama administration. So very highly thought of attorney, and he argued that case for them. And he argued that antitrust courts lack the authority to uh, decide the central differentiating features of the NCAA's pro-competitive product. And what he meant by that is that he says the NCAA's product is unique from you know, say the NFL or the NBA, because it is, involves amateur athletes, athletes that do not compete for pay. And he argues that college football is really a fundamentally different product, uh, albeit a competing product with the NFL and so on. Uh, Justice Breyer uh, appointed by President Clinton 
um, talked about how, you know, educational institutions under the, the lower court's decree in this matter can get away with murder by giving athletes hundreds of thousands of dollars in educational benefits, including post-eligibility scholarships and things. He said, well, what if, you know, can, can a university promise to send you to law school or medical school? That's expensive. It might be a six-figure sum. And, you know, even if your playing career is over, can they promise to send you to graduate school and pay huge amounts of expenses for you? And, and of course, it begs the question of whether you can require uh, amateur athletes to be amateurs in the first place or whether you're in some way taking advantage of them. Justice Kagan uh, countered that idea with, well, you know, the times have changed and these athletes are, are uh, contributing to an enterprise that earns millions upon millions of dollars. And why are they the only ones involved in the equation who cannot uh, profit from it in some significant way that reflects their level of contribution to the enterprise. And uh, Justice Alito, who was appointed by George W. Bush, uh, seemed to be kind of agreeing with Justice Kagan on this issue. Uh, or uh, he he argued that, look, these guys uh, have a low graduation rate. They have pressure to put sports above school. They're working 40 or 50 hours a week, maybe, before they even crack a book or go to class. Uh, they tend to have lower grades as a result of that. Uh, few of them ultimately move on to the pros. Uh, Many that could have gone on to the pros may suffer a career-ending injury and are unable to ultimately profit from the reputation they may have gained in college sports. And he says at the end, you know, they end up being used up, paid nothing, and go out of college many times without a degree or a way to support themselves. I remember Luke Staley at BYU, my alma mater, great college running back. And uh, in fact, won I believe the Doak Walker award for the best collegiate running back in the nation uh, suffered severe knee injuries in college and, and also back injuries. And ultimately he tried to, to go into the NFL, but his body would not cooperate and he, he didn't make it. Um, if, if not for those injuries, he likely would have been very successful. He, actually entered the NFL draft after uh, a season-ending injury. And he knew that was going to hurt his stock in the draft because people weren't going to be able to see on the playing field if he had recovered. But he wanted to make whatever money he could uh, while his injury was still questionable rather than, you know, taking his chances on playing another year and, and, you know, running the risk of, of another injury, which would, you know, perhaps make it impossible for him to be drafted or, or uh, get that signing bonus or whatever. Uh, similarly, 
we don't have serious injuries uh, with Zach Wilson, BYU's current quarterback who entered the NFL draft early. And why is he foregoing his senior year at BYU? Well, when you're poised to be the number two pick in the draft and get a huge signing bonus in the millions and a, a, a contract where you're going to make millions of dollars, are you going to risk that by coming back for your senior year and trying to uh, compete for another year and help your team to a bowl game and whatever and risk getting injured, perhaps a career ending injury, which makes it impossible for you to go on uh, to the pros and make that money. So he's guaranteed right now a high position in the draft, lots of money. It's a lot to risk. And that's why he entered the NFL draft early. And right now, collegiate athletes are paid their to have their tuition covered, rent, uh, other educational expenses, and meals and things like that. So the question really isn't whether athletes are paid, but how much they're paid. Now I can even say I, I went to college uh, on a debate scholarship. Uh, I was on the debate team and a certain amount of our expenses were paid, including my full tuition. Uh, so it isn't just athletes, but the question is not, is not whether they're paid, but how much they're paid. And, and that, uh, and can, you know, can an athlete receive unlimited educational related expenses? And it looks from the way that this was argued, like they're talking about a very expansive definition of educational expenses. And it begs the question for me, does that include buying a mansion for all of the football players to live in and giving them free room and board there? Does it, you know, could the institution say, well, to really function both as a student and an athlete, uh, you need a car. And if a car, why not a Cadillac? So we're going to give you uh, a Cadillac while you're playing football for us. Um, you know, you can let your imagination run wild as to where that, that goes. And Justice Kagan's view was, look, the, the market would support, support much higher compensation for these athletes, if not for the fact that all universities got together, quote, in restraint of trade, going back to the antitrust law provisions. And she said, if they hadn't all gotten together and, and set the cost of labor and set it artificially low, uh, the market would support much higher compensation. <laughs> she makes the point that it is necessary for the NCAA schools to cooperate on the rules. How big is a football field? Um, is, you know, one foot or two foot feet out of bounds um, or inbounds necessary for a complete pass? Uh, you know, on all the, the rules, the size of the fields, how many players you can have on the field at one time, all that kind of stuff. They have to cooperate on uh, to create that market and to make uh, a game that, that is competitive. 
but do they have to cooperate on the cost of labor, on the cost of putting those athletes on the field? And it's a good question. Uh, are, is it an unlawful restraint of trade to say the athletes can't earn anything but some minimal educational expenses? And, you know, I think in the back of, well, and in fact, in the front of some of these justices' minds, like Justice Alito, you're talking about uh, whether uh, whether or not these athletes who are risking a lot in terms of injuries and and their education uh, are ever going to be compensated in any way for the sacrifices they made when they may not many of them may not make it in the pro, in the pro leagues. Justice Gorsuch, uh, also a Republican-appointed justice, said that other leagues don't set the cost of labor, uh, but the NCAA has sole control of the labor market, and they're, they're exercising that in favor of the universities, not of the athletes. Um, a lot of the justices seemed to not be buying the pro-competitive argument uh, based on differentiating student athletes from professional athletes. They didn't seem to to buy the idea that that it was a different product and that the NCAA was a unique actor in the market for, you know, say the TV market for sports. But again, that's a question of whether you're defining the market as, say, the TV market for all sporting events or whether the NCAA is the market. And Justice Gorsuch made it very clear that he thinks the NCAA is the market and that within that market, the various schools are price fixing on the cost of labor. Um, again, Justice Kavanaugh, also uh, appointed by President Trump, talks about taking advantage of college athletes, making billions of dollars and paying nothing for their labor. Um, you know, significant time injuries and all of those things uh, make, make them pay really peanuts for what they're make. you know, for the time and effort and risks they're taking to be collegiate athletes, particularly in contact sports like football. Um, solicitor Waxman or attorney Waxman now uh, argued that uh, allowing athlete college athletes to be paid would would decrease the funding for non-revenue sports, uh, wrestling. Um, crew, lacrosse, you know, you name it. The, the big sports for, um, for money are, number one, football and then basketball. And then uh, after that, it drops off significantly. But, but baseball would also be considered a revenue sport at many universities. Uh, but anyway, Solicitor Waxman was saying that that's going to increase or decrease money for those other sports. 
Now, whether that is an issue the Supreme Court is going to care about in an antitrust case, I'm, I'm skeptical. Justice Breyer, however, made the point that he's concerned about the judges running amateur sports or defining the product. I think implied in that is he's concerned about defining the market, which under the antitrust acts seems to be something judges are called upon to do. Now, maybe Congress ought to pass something that would, that would make uh, defining the market a little bit more clear of an exercise, although we've got 100 year, years of precedent on it. And, uh, and the courts have, you know, done factual determinations and looked at economic analysis and things in order to define what the relevant market is. And that's really where where the fight is on these antitrust cases is how do you define the market? Once you define the market, you determine whether somebody has market power. And oftentimes uh, there is anti-competitive conduct. And then the question is, do they have market power to qualify as, you know, and something approaching monopoly power would be, um, you know, the most persuasive but then, but but you have to define the market in order to determine what level of power someone, some company has. And Justice Breyer was expressing concern, and I've I've heard him express this concern in various other cases and other areas of the law too, that uh, judges trying to run college sports might adversely affect the real economic endeavor and cause its demise. And he's saying, what if we make a rule for the NCAA that kills it? Is that something we really want to do? Um, Justice uh, Gorsuch talked about how he doesn't want uh, the courts fly-specking covenants not to compete and things like that, uh, that... He, he wonders what made the searching inquiry okay in the lower court uh, into this conduct. But he also made the point that he seems to believe the NCAA is the market and has monopoly power within that market. And so he's going to take a very close look at the anti-competitive conduct, namely what he and Justice Kagan on traditionally two ends of the court are looking at in terms of uh, whether the cost of labor is being fixed. Um, so I want to go back to the 30,000 foot view now that we've kind of put some of the issues in the NCAA case on the table for discussion. And I think that there was a, a Hamiltonian view, the view proposed by Alexander Hamilton of government, of business, and all of this in, in the early days. And, and there was a Jeffersonian view. And let me sort of briefly give you the outlines of those two separate views. The view of Alexander Hamilton was that he wanted big institutions. Some, some in his era 
accused him of being a monarchist, which he he wasn't, but he did believe that big government, big business, uh, big military, uh, centralized authority were the things that were going to make us a powerful country. And he, he liked big institutions. He liked centralized government power. He thought it was efficient. And if you look at uh, what he did as Secretary of the Treasury under President George Washington, he created the first national bank. So he believed in central banking. Well, what was the, the Jeffersonian ideal? Jefferson was on the opposite end of that. He thought liberty was best preserved uh, with small institutions, with small government, with uh, citizen militia, military, rather than a large professional army. An example of this is after the Louisiana Purchase, when the, the Homestead Acts were passed, you could get 160 acres by homesteading. Uh, which was enough for a productive family farm, but not for a large slave plantation like he grew up on. And I think that tells you a lot about where Jefferson was. Uh, he believed that in a republic, uh, a militia of the whole, uh, or otherwise called in the founding era, the body of the people, was more representative of the people as a whole, was less dangerous to liberty, and I think it's fair to say was less ambitious. A, a, a citizen militia of people who are farmers and merchants and other things uh, for their day job is less anxious to go out and fight in wars to advance their careers. But a professional army may see uh, going to war as as a benefit for them career-wise. And, and a, a large professional army is also a well-armed special interest group capable of working its will against the people. So if we kind of juxtapose the Hamiltonian and Jeffersonian views, uh, you see sort of a mixture of the traditional uh, positions between the Republican and Democratic parties over the years, although I, I see that as being in flux in the in the last you know, decade or two. But the Democrats typically have said we're the party of big government, but we're, we mistrust big business. And the Republicans have tended to be seen as the party of big business, but small government. Uh, whether those labels really fit anymore is is a good question and i'm not going to attempt to get into that in this podcast but in others we we will when we look at that in terms of antitrust i will say unapologetically that i am a jeffersonian uh, i believe in small government in decentralized power states rights all of that for the idea that a broad distribution of power uh, helps to ensure 
uh, the continuance of a Republican form of government and the rights of the people and all of that. I also believe uh, that we should resist concentrations of power, centralization of power, public and private, that you have as much to fear in some ways from big business and monopolies as you do from a big government. And I will also observe that over time, Hamilton's view has largely won out. Uh, we have a big federal government that reaches into virtually every area of life, despite many constitutional limitations. And uh big government has tended to be the servant of the strong. So if you look at the bailouts in the 2008 financial crisis, uh, I'll probably do a, a podcast on that all by itself at some point. But my belief is that those were undertaken to keep those that are in power in power. And we were kind of sold a bill of goods on that. But be that as it may, we'll we'll save that subject for another podcast. Uh, in any event, um, I believe in a in a view of American business consistent with what Teddy Roosevelt thought, and he said we don't want to stop businesses from growing by legitimate business practices. You know, Steve Jobs got really rich by giving people, selling people stuff that they wanted. Well, I don't want to stop him from doing that. Oprah Winfrey built a brand and, and a series of products that people wanted and paid for. The, and Teddy Roosevelt would say that was not uh, unethical or bad and people getting rich that way is perfectly legitimate. What we want to prevent in American business is people uh, getting rich from mergers and acquisitions that create monopolies, that reduce competition and aggregate market power to the disadvantage of consumers and competitors. And and really making it impossible to uh, to enter, you know, creating entry barriers to the market that make it almost impossible for new businesses to start. And that was really the purpose of the antitrust acts: is to create economic freedom and to to make it possible for someone with a good idea to start to make it relatively cheap, you know, in terms of regulation and and other costs imposed by government, make it relatively cheap to enter the market and to make it so that the the big dogs on the street can't can't prevent the little ones from getting into the game and growing and, and so on. I believe this has immense implications for American liberty. I believe that uh, we we need uh, free a free market, but it can't be it, just as in politics. 
we we don't want anarchy. We want freedom, but we don't want that freedom to be used specifically to harm other people. Uh, I've mentioned this example before, but the fact that I have freedom of religion doesn't allow me to offer your child as a human sacrifice. And, and we're looking at this, the same analogy in terms of uh, business. The fact that you have economic freedom does not extend to predatory conduct toward other businesses and predatory conduct toward the consumer. And it's what John Locke might call ordered liberty. Um, just as we, we want a system in politics that prevents the strong from oppressing the weak, um, you know, somebody coming by your house and saying, you're going to pay me for protection in this neighborhood. And if I don't get a thousand dollars a month, from youth, bad things are going to happen because my gang will cause that to happen. Well, government exists to protect us against those kinds of things, right? And so uh, th the same is true in the antitrust realm. And, and so, I, and I believe that, that the general principles that the the courts have used in interpreting the antitrust acts have by and large been, have served us pretty well. Now, I think there are things that have occurred in, in this area, like a, how Bill Clinton's justice department ever let that Exxon Mobil merger go through is beyond me. And then they wondered why gas shot up to five bucks a gallon. Um, you know, I have more to say out in the oil business too. And I worked in that business for a while, but it, it's an example, I think, of how, um, uh, you know, growing not through having a better product and competing in the market, but through acquiring uh, or teaming up with other big players in the market uh, can cause significant problems. So um, in terms of, of liberty, and freedom, uh, I, I want to see entry barriers come down. And many of those entry barriers, I believe, have been created by uh, large players in the markets to prevent smaller players from getting started. One little example, I had a client at one point that was buying homes in the Midwest that had been foreclosed or people had just deserted, you know, in the flight from Detroit, things like that. They were buying these homes for a very cheap price, fixing them up and flipping them and, and making a good amount of money. But they wanted to allow smaller investors to come in who didn't have enough money to buy an entire house and pay the fix-up costs. And they wanted to allow those people to, to pool their money with others so that they could invest and have a piece of that action. Well, uh, I had to advise my client, nope, you can't do it because un, you know any of you familiar with securities law know that under Reg D, um, you can't go solicit money uh, from non-accredited investors unless you are a registered public um, 
a registered public security. Uh, so if you're listed on the New York Stock Exchange, yeah, you can market to consumers, but you can't uh, market private equity that way. So it prevents a lot of smaller investors from making a lot of money uh, buying private equity. And it was passed in the name of consumer protection. And in order to, to be able to buy private equity, you know, you have to be an accredited investor. Well, accredited, an accredited investor is a fancy word for a millionaire. Okay. Uh, if I'm not a millionaire, I, as an attorney with 20 years of school and, you know, eight years of college, um, two advanced degrees, I am not smart enough to buy private equity, but somebody who inherited a million dollars at age 18 is. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but it's one of those entry barriers that I believe has, has been created to keep the rich people rich and uh, prevent other people from investing and having their piece of the American dream. And, and we could go through a variety of, of uh, rules and regulations like that, that uh, I believe are designed to keep those in power in power and keep those uh, aspiring to create businesses, to get wealthier, to employ people and all of that from encroaching on the business of those who are already there, who already that already exist. And that is where I think the antitrust laws uh, need to go. So when it comes to these athletes, uh, I, I think the antitrust laws need to take into account the fact that a lot has changed since the NCAA uh, got started. Uh, you know, in the early days, college athletes were true amateurs. Today in the big money sports, uh, they are, they're no longer amateurs. They're professionals in, in at least in division one, they're professionals that are playing for a hope that one day they might have a chance in professional sports. And we know the vast majority are not going to make it because professional sports is so competitive. I don't want to take away the traditions of uh, college sports. And I think, in fact, if you just took all college teams and divided them away from the universities and made them semi-pro or minor league teams, uh, that it would lose its luster. Uh, part of college football, for example, is the traditions and the rivalries, you know, the traditional Army-Navy game every year, or uh, here in Utah, the, the Holy War between BYU and the University of Utah. Those bring people out. They get people excited. Uh, there are loyalties to the school you went to that, that play into that. I don't want to take any of that away. But I think it is a reasonable compromise to suggest that schools can give uh, unlimited education-related benefits to those athletes. 
um, in order to better compensate them for the sacrifices they make, uh, both academically and the risks they take on the field uh, of play. And, and that's how I, I can see applying the antitrust laws in this particular case, because the NCAA really is, in my view, the market. Um, college sports <clears throat> is a different enough product that I, I don't believe it, it competes all that much with the NFL. I think there's a big fan preference one way or the other in, in most cases. I also believe uh, that they're regulating the cost of labor and that the market would support much higher compensation for those who are giving the most in terms of sacrifice and effort. Uh, and, and they're giving up a lot. <clears throat> and, and so I, I do think uh, that the NCAA rules are anti-competitive in, in that regard and that fixing the cost of labor does not give labor a fair shake. Uh, they're aggregating market power against the interests of the student-athletes. So that's my opinion. But whatever you think of that, <clears throat> give a long, hard look to antitrust law and how you're going to see that going forward politically. Do we want Hamilton's view where we have big government serving the interests of big business and we have big military because we want to be a powerful country or do we want to be a free country? with lots of checks and balances, with decentralized uh, authority, both political and economic, and where we have a business climate where the vigorous new entrepreneur can start a business and have a chance to grow and compete in the market. And that is my vision for American business. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you're a lover of liberty, you're in the right place. And thank you for listening.